0: Five, four, three, two,
1: one. And the woman, it was like her thyroid was strangling her. It was absolutely huge.
2: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the U of T Medicine Faculty After Hours. We're so excited to have you join us today and we have a very special guest who is also director of our beloved Fitzgerald Academy here at U of T. We'll be talking a little bit about them and their roles in the department, their interests inside and outside of medicine, as well as getting into some um, questions that we have in store for later on. Uh, so come sit with us with a delicious cup of tea or coffee and enjoy another piping hot episode of Faculty After Hour.
0: Dr. Molly Zirkel, an otolaryngologist, aka ENT, has a longstanding interest in education and simulation. From 2002 to 2005, she was on the staff at Harvard Centers for Medical Simulation, creating simulation programs for airway management and simulation center training programs. She has also served, sorry, she has also valued the use of task-based simulators and assessment tools at St. Michael's Surgical Skills Center. She was the undergraduate and postgraduate coordinator at St. Michael's Hospital, for the Department of Otolaryngology, Head and Neck Surgery. She has been Director of Fitzgerald Academy since 2010, and it's my absolute pleasure to welcome her today. Dr. Zirkel, how are you?
1: I'm fine, thank you, and thank you for having me.
0: It's our pleasure. Thank you for making time and uh, coming to talk with us today. So we're just gonna get right into it with the rapid fire question
2: okay yeah, so as we um just for our listeners rapid fire questions are basically very quick questions that usually have you know one an- like one word answers or a few words very quickly uh but you know what if, if we end up spending a little bit more time on one of them then that's okay too are so you ready to get started i am all right first question is coffee or tea coffee and starbucks or Tim Hortons?
1: Well, I grew up in Washington state, so I'm going to have to say Starbucks. Sorry, guys.
0: Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> not, <laughs> very Canadian, <laughs> not very Canadian of you. Not very Canadian. Let's find out. I, know. I like good
1: <laughs> I've often felt that they should collect taxes at uh, Tim Hortons because every Canadian goes there every day instead of having mm. to mail stuff in. But um, yeah, I'm a Starbucks person.
2: Right on. What's your favorite drink from there?
1: I actually get an Americano.
2: <laughs> okay. Awesome. And next question. What's your favorite color to wear?
1: I like wearing blue. Um, my favorite color is green though.
2: Okay. My favorite color is also green. Uh, and what's the nickname that your parents used to call you?
1: My parents used to call me a nickname that I gave myself, which is hard head.
2: Oh, where does that come from?
1: Well, when I was little, i I could hit my head really hard and it wouldn't hurt, and I probably <laughs> used that as a weapon from time to time. and so oh <laughs> I used it as a way of announcing my power, and then they um, took me up on it. so
2: <laughs> so don't get on your bad side.
1: I do have a very hard <laughs> head, both literally and figuratively.
2: <laughs> I find
0: it pretty ironic because now you're you're in the head and surgery department, so it's a good transition mm-hmm. to what you're doing
2: now.
1: Yeah, for sure. <laughs>
2: awesome and what's one of your weirdest quirks if you have any
1: i think my weirdest quirk is that i am i can be very sneaky Mm -hmm. and i got that because um when i was growing up my father was a surgical resident and if we woke him up we would get in trouble like we would be punished and so Mm -hmm. i learned from a very young age how to move about my house very quietly and that's been a good skill to have
2: Yeah, that sounds very useful, not just around the house, but also in general, just getting getting through situations. Uh, uh, Who's your who is your uh, role model?
1: Well, I guess my generic and common answer, but I realize I'm very fortunate to have this as my answer would be my parents, Um, Mm -hmm. in particular, my father, who is an orthopedic surgeon and um, He's just uh, created a lot of wonderful programs to help people. And he's definitely an inspiration to me.
0: And does your father, I'm assuming, practice in the States?
1: My father right now, he's 80 and he runs a global uh, orthopedic network of providing implants that don't require any um, advanced technology to place them. And he has a machine shop and he has uh, engineers and this is all done as a charity. And he's um, helped 250,000 people over the last 20 wow. years uh, with this program. It's called SIGN, Surgical Implant Generation Network. So. Oh, well,
0: that awesome. sounds amazing. Yeah, yeah
1: he was really disappointed I didn't go into orthopedics. <laughs>
2: oh. <laughs> yeah, you heard it 250, here 250,000 people.
1: <laughs> Mm-hmm. If you're ever
2: interested in, in that field, get, check out Sign.
1: Yes, for sure. He has my um, same last name, so you'll see him pop up.
2: Oh, perfect, perfect. Uh, next question is, what is one thing you put on your bucket list?
1: Um, actually, my bucket list includes, uh, this is going to be really random, but mm-hmm. um, I do Olympic weightlifting. And my Ooh. bucket list is to compete um, in a world competition for Olympic weightlifting.
2: Wow. So what is Olympic weightlifting versus like uh, regular in terms of the exercise? So this, is,
1: this is one of the original Olympic sports. So it's, there's two lifts, there's snatch and clean and jerk.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: basically you get three tries to do your best on each. And, um, you know, it's, the lifts are judged and you have to do it in a certain manner to have the lift be accepted. Mm-hmm. And I've been doing this for about six years and I've competed nationally. I just did my first international competition, but it was virtual. Oh, congrats. And, um, I'm looking forward to going someday to the world when the pandemic ends.
2: Awesome. And what's your, uh, what's your best currently?
1: So my, my current, we call them PRs, my personal record for mm-hmm. snatch is 51 kilos. And for clean oh. and jerk it's 60 kilos.
2: So. Awesome. And do you, have a, do you have a target that you're trying to reach or a goal in mind?
1: Yeah. I'd like to get to 55 and 65.
2: Okay. Well, awesome. uh,
0: honestly, I, I, I think there's uh, something with this program when we interview faculty, we always see like something that we never expected from them. Uh, I know like Dr. Housen likes to do like helicopter skiing, so she jumps off a helicopter and goes skiing down a mountain. Um, yeah. you're doing Olympic weightlifting, and here we are, students just uh, going to a regular gym.
1: <laughs> well, it's great. Yeah, you know, the thing is, I have more time and I have more control over my time than you guys have. So
2: that is when they will get there.
1: Yeah, just keep at it.
2: we <laughs> Will do. Um, another question uh, is texting or calling?
1: I am moving into the texting world, mostly because I have three teenage boys and so that's the way I can get them to communicate. They don't like talking on the phone, so...
2: Mm. I adapt. Yeah. yeah, I noticed that too, with like, people sort of in our generation prefer just the quick text as opposed to the call. Yes. Uh, I'm noticing a reverse in my, me, like, as I gr- get older, I'm starting to prefer calling. So. I, <laughs>
1: Also, with the pandemic, you know, it's kind of nice to have more of a space to exchange information.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So. I know me, me and Josh, um, I got him into voice notes. So it's it's a nice middle ground where we could express what we need to say in a voice note and not have to text it. So uh-huh. I, I got him hooked in that. So I don't know if it would work for you and your, your sons and your teenage boys, but it's worth the effort and it saves you a lot of time texting.
1: My sisters and I do um, something called Marco Polo. Do you know that? It's like a little video thing. You can create a little video and send it out to people. So Mm -hmm. we do little video updates to each other.
2: that sounds really cool.
1: Yeah.
2: Is Marco Polo like the application that you use for it? Yeah, that's the app. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Uh, Next question is, if you could bring one thing with you, if you got stuck on a desert island, what would it be?
1: probably a blanket and I say that for a few reasons one I can't sleep unless I have something covering me but I also like I'm really fair skinned and the sunscreen would run out so I need something to give me shelter so
2: mm-hmm.
1: it could be a blanket plus I could use it as a pillow so
2: very practical I like it yes and <laughs> um, I guess we talked about like your favorite hobby Olympic Olympic weightlifting probably or do you have another one as well
1: That is probably my main hobby right now. But I also am perfecting my skills at baking bread like everyone else. So I make a sourdough loaf once a week with my starter. And um, I have to say, I am getting better at it. So,
0: Other than sourdough bread, anything other than that?
1: No, I mean, actually, so as you can imagine, being a full time surgeon and a mother of three people, I basically decided I can't do everything. And the one thing I decided I wasn't going to be good at was cooking. So I've been very practical and just very boring cooking until now. Uh, I have a little bit more time because they're older. And with the pandemic, my sister started baking sourdough. And I thought, well, if she can do it, I can do it. So.
2: (laughs) And I was going to ask, based on your journey so far in terms of making sourdoughs, what makes a good sourdough?
1: You know, um, patience, which I don't often have a lot of, but you have to be patient and let it rise. Um, You also have to be patient with beating it. I think that's the biggest thing I've learned is that you really have to beat it for about 15 minutes. And I have one of these big mixers and it just whips around like crazy. I have to hold the mixer because I put it on really high Mm -hmm. for like 10 or 15 minutes. And then it's a very kind of elastic texture. So I think that's been the biggest thing I've learned. And also temperature. There's a lot of things. It's very cool, all the overlapping things that make a good local
2: bread, so. It's It's a science.
1: And you can screw it up at any point. Like, it can be perfect when it comes out. And then if you don't, like if I put it right on the counter instead of on like a drying rack, then it gets soggy. If I cut it too soon, it gets soggy. These are the things I've learned about my sourdough. Yeah. Yeah.
2: <laughs> um, the next question is, uh, we're, we, your answers are kind of like predicting the next questions almost because next one's kind of like what skill would you like to learn and like here you are with you're starting off with the bread making, mm-hmm. um, it's awesome, I'll, I'll just go to the next one. What, what's a book you read recently that you would recommend to students?
1: there's a book my father's in the habit of always recommending books that he hasn't quite read so one of them that he didn't read that i ended up reading is called humankind and it's actually a great book i don't know if you know about it i don't know the author sorry but it basically takes the tact that you know humans are actually essentially good and that our Mm -hmm. instincts are to do good things and that's so counter to like the media and a lot of the messages we get and so Uh, The book dissects different studies and uh, different situations that have happened over time that kind of help us think of ourselves as being inherently not good and shows where there's been misrepresentation or it hasn't been reported fully or there were confounding factors in some of the studies that actually made it uh, not come out with the outcome that we so popularly believe. So um, one of the things from that book that I learned is that when you analyze, actually, the guns of soldiers who went to war in the Civil War, mm-hmm. like 85% of them didn't fire any guns. They just carried oh, wow. it around and cleaned it. Because humans really have a hard time bringing themselves to actually killing other humans. And so, you know, you get a sense that there's probably way, myths that have been perpetuated and he kind of breaks them down one by one. So it's a very hopeful book.
2: Uh, I think we all need need that especially during during this time for sure I I think
0: uh honestly that jumped onto my bucket list uh of books to read because um I've, I've been looking into and reading into kind of like the psychology of human beings and the philosophy of human beings and um different philosophers and psychologists would have like a different opinion some would say like we're inherently bad some would say we're inherently good um and and like you said, media tends to kind of push the inherent. Like we always see the extravagant, the the bad, the worst case scenarios. We never really see like the more uh, humbling and uh, you know very kind examples. It's often the bad side of humanity. So for sure, Jump my list to read.
1: Yeah, I recommend it. It's easy to read too. It's very uh, entertaining. So
2: that's good. And who's the author? I wish I knew. <laughs> okay. I think
1: human it's died. Rutger.
2: Uh,
0: is it Rutger or Bregman? Yeah,
1: I think you're okay. right.
0: I just okay. I searched it up quickly because I, I put it on my list and uh, it, there's two books, there's Humankind and then there's Humankind A Hopeful History.
1: Uh, I read Humankind.
2: You're okay, just thinking, okay.
1: Yeah.
2: Okay, perfect. Uh, the next question is uh, uh, what's your favorite song currently?
1: um you know i so i went to high school in the 80s so i've been Mm -hmm. revisiting a lot of van halen lately and there's so many songs that like i wasn't thinking they were coming from eddie van halen but they were so i've been going down memory lane with a lot of his songs yeah that's so
2: nice
0: Uh... is there any one like specific that it's like a go-to whenever you need it
1: Okay, this is actually a dark secret, but I was a cheerleader in high school, and we did a routine to jump, and so I've been really enjoying jump.
2: (laughs) Ooh, awesome!
0: (laughs) That one's a good one. That's a good one. Would
2: you ever get back into cheerleading one day? No. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. And the next question is very important. Yes. Um, Are you a dog or a cat person?
1: I'm gonna say both. So I was a dog person my whole life. And then um, we ended up getting a shelter cat named Luna. And um, so I'm really enjoying learning about cats now. I think they're mm-hmm. hilarious. And they're a lot less work than dogs. But mm-hmm. there's a huge payoff with dogs, of course.
2: Mm-hmm. Awesome. Very safe answer there, covering your bases. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the last question over here, or second last, sorry. Uh, what's a clinical examination that you learned in school that you have never used in practice?
1: Anything with an go.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you know,
0: this is not the first time um, someone has said that. I think uh, a few physicians uh, have said that before, like anything like the, uh, like anything to do with the eye and whatnot. And, and that's like a very common answer
1: it's just a really hard exam and it's really hard to know if you're seeing what you're supposed to be seeing so Mm
2: -hmm. and the last question of the rapid fires is what's the toughest medical procedure that you ever performed
1: um so it's uh, there was one specific total thyroidectomy i did this is funny actually i did it in 2017 and the woman it was like her thyroid was strangling her it was absolutely huge it took forever i think i was in there for five hours i left she got a bleed we had to take her urgently back to the or it was like a really hard case but the thyroid was just like probably three times the size it should have been and aside from the bleed she got out with no complications and i was feeling really good about the case and how she did and then she just got re-referred to me last week and the referral note said this patient underwent a total thyroidectomy and suffered all these complications including having a bleed oh, no. and going to the icu and this did not relieve her problem
2: <laughs> oh, <no. laughs>
1: so then I i went in i am like was curious i'm like well you know i'm not sure why you're here today but what is the problem and she's like oh you know i have uh post-nasal drip <laughs> okay well <laughs> <laughs> Taking out your thyroid not relieve that for sure, but she definitely needed it out.
0: So. Interesting. Well, so I, <laughs> I thought, <clears throat> yeah, I was gonna say I thought the her problem was like the the choking, uh, the thyroid kind yes. of um, having an well, impact. So I...
1: Not only was she choking, but it was squishing her airway. I mean, the the thyroid had to come out, but apparently that didn't register with her. So, I may maybe I didn't do a good job communicating that to her or her family doctor, but. Anyway, she's none the worse for the wear. At least,
2: <laughs>
0: at least she's healthy. Yes. Um, she's so healthy. we're gonna. Oh, do you want to continue? Before no, I was to say. I
2: like a, she's she's like breathing. Yes, <laughs> it's, mm. it's good. <laughs> yes.
0: It has to be like it really has to be a big like growth or a mass for it to kind of impact your your trachea.
1: Yeah, that
2: sucker's pretty thick. Like it it's cartilage.
1: It was big. <laughs> oh. wow. Okay. Yeah, that wraps so up gonna... the
2: rubber fires uh, and we're going to shift it over. and is going to start us off on the uh, more tailored questions. Okay. And we're looking forward to hearing hearing you dig deep into some of these. Okay. So the first one is, uh, can you describe your role in
0: the faculty in your own words?
1: Um. Yes. I am the director of the Fitzgerald Academy. I've had this job for over 10 years and the job is essentially the human being that connects the hospital with the MD program. So the MD program, as you know, sort of all the curriculum and assessment and sort of kind of what we're gonna do comes from the MD program. How we're going to do that really rests in my hands and is under my purview with respect to the clinical education and that's the preceptors uh, both in the foundation's curriculum and then also uh, on the clerkship and uh, people report to a lot of different people so you know they may be doing uh, the activities they're doing at the behest of their department but I'm the person who oversees in general that what is delivered to the students is what uh, is intended so that's one side of the role another side of the role is I'm the representative for the MD program to the hospital so all these things about, you know, COVID and PPE and where students are and how they're going to work and how that impacts the hospital and, and um, the business that's done here is something that I oversee. And then my the third part of the job is the best part, which is really the interactions and interfacing with the students uh, directly, either in times of joy, like graduation or at the parties, or also in times of need or distress or times of confusion, like, what am I going to go into? And can you help me find people to talk to about certain things? So the job is absolutely multifaceted. It is kind of hard to explain. Um, and, and I like that. I like that there's a lot of different ways that I can jump in and interact with uh, people to make things better.
2: Yeah, it sounds like it's, there's a lot of different responsibilities. Um, I think we know from a student perspective that our academy directors are doing a lot for us in many different ways. So, I'm sure that everyone at FITS really appreciates having someone who cares so much about them.
1: Yeah, you know, I often say, like, you can't teach someone to care. Like, they either care or they don't. And that's probably the most important um, thing for for this job, because there's just so many different facets of it. And and you really have to kind of care about the students and their experience, I think, to be successful in this role. Mm -hmm. And it's really fun. It's a great job. Is
0: there like the hardest thing in your job? Is there like one thing that like it's very tough and
1: demanding? Um, on the academy side, I think the biggest challenges come with some of um, the issues that students might raise with respect to some of their experiences. And some of them are certainly mistreatment and some of them are sort of cultural adaptation. I mean, if you think about what we do we take learning directly into a workplace environment you know that doesn't happen in any other professional school it doesn't happen in law business business is all about simulation you know law they're just sitting in classroom you guys are working with patients who are sick and family members who are stressed and a bunch of people who are here showing up to work every day to do their job and their main job doesn't necessarily by their perspective include Uh, educating you or even attending to you in any way. And so it's a complex sort of structure to put a student into and make sure that they get what they need out of it. And so it is challenging when, um, you know, expectations aren't met or when there is conflict. And, um, you know, we try and turn that into something constructive or at least something that we where we try and limit the harm that it does to people and their experience. The reason I took this job is because I think it's important to treat students in a certain way because I think ultimately that impacts the type of physician they become, and that impacts how they think about how they're going to treat their patients and the patients' families.
2: Mm-hmm. Awesome. Um, and the next question we have is uh, not necessarily related to the students but more so about so sort of your Uh, academic interests but we know that you have an interest in simulations and uh, sadly not a lot of medical students really know the like the intricacies of simulation based learning Mm -hmm. Um, so would you be able to talk about uh, simulations and sort of how they're they're used in medical education or the medical field
1: sure i mean i think we all have the best simulator in the world on our shoulders it's our brain And even though you're saying, oh, you know, uh, medical students don't know about simulation, you guys use simulation all the time. You use standardized patients, you practice on one another. Simulation is a substitution of some other means of learning a skill. And so that can be a task trainer, like, you know, laparoscopic surgery, when that came in, it was, you know, a given that you would have to learn that outside of working on a human body. So you can learn a task that way. Um, I was involved in a different type of simulation called team training, which I still think is a very powerful tool. um, because what it does is it tries to change culture. It tries to give people complex scenarios that they have to work out with other members of a team to try and understand how to do that better and how to be better in a team. And I, I think that's has a lot of value and it is really challenging to do it well. And it's also very expensive. Um, but I think that that's something that you know St. Michael's does and a lot of other hospitals do because they see the importance of it but I think if you start looking you will see simulation everywhere you know it's really just using your brain to kind of work through something that you aren't actually doing and I think it's really an important part of experiential learning for all of us so.
2: yeah uh, it's simulation is something that I've been pretty interested in as well I did a uh grad school in like sort of medical education and then took a, a course about simulation and it's, it's so interesting and seeing the different applications and the creativity you can have in like coming up with a simulation based approach to address a particular this education need it's really so cool I,
1: I think that um it definitely is important and it has a role but one of the challenges is it also is expensive to maintain and it takes time away from some of the other duties that uh, medical learners have and so where it fits in I think it's a constant battle to keep it in the not in the first two years but uh, more in the in the um uh more advanced curriculum how do you keep it when it's competing with clinical work when I look at my own field you know it has to see it has to have a um a value to the people who are doing it and my uh, field otolaryngology has had a very long history of a temporal bone lab so there is no otolaryngology program that doesn't have and maintain a temporal bone lab and that's been the case for at least 50 years and that's because it's a really complex thing to learn how to drill a temporal bone and so there's always been a simulation of that for for, first residents to learn from so
0: interesting I think um... Just a follow up to that, would you see simulators being used a lot more now with the kind of transition to the online world and more acceptance of like Zoom and and online content and uh, doing stuff remotely, would that encourage more simulation use within the medical field?
1: I think it absolutely will. I think that uh, the situation we're in is going to press us to become more innovative in learning skills Um, and, you know, that, that the situation we're in will certainly push us towards more simulation as we have less access to patients. Um, but I think that that there will always be a pendulum. When we have more access to patients, I think again that will be uh, what we favor, because simulation takes time from experts too, and. Uh, experts in general are usually experts in a clinical domain and so getting them to share their expertise in a purely educational environment is um, hard to sustain unless there's a pressing external reason.
0: Thank you for that. Uh, transitioning to the next question is advice you'd give your younger self and advice you'd give to medical students.
1: Um. I think I can tell my younger self to relax a little bit (laughs) and not worry so much. I came to medicine after getting um, uh, my undergraduate major, I had a double major in history and religion, so I didn't really take any sciences except for the requirements. So I was constantly studying. I was sure everyone knew everything else that was being taught. Cause I went to a school, well, back in the nineties we had a very traditional curriculum. So anatomy, physiology, microbiology. Um, and these are all courses that other students had had coming in and I hadn't had any of them. So I just put my head down and worked really hard and studied a lot and um, yeah, and it ended up okay. But I, I dedicated a lot of time and that was coming from a place of fear and feeling like I wasn't going to measure up. And I think that that probably ultimately is not a healthy position to maintain for too long. And I probably maintained it for longer than I should have.
2: Yeah, I think a lot of students can can relate to that, especially like as we move further in med school and thinking about like, you know, the CARM's anxiety. Like, I think a lot of students are struggling to like reconcile making time for yourselves versus becoming a competitive applicant
1: yeah and and the compet the bar is so much higher than when i was going through i mean it's i feel for you guys
0: and then advice for medical students
1: um i would say i guess it's in different stages um for the clerks i'd say it's important to not hold back and to really just kind of jump in and become part of the experience and learn from everything learn from what you didn't do right or you know a decision you made that that went a different way and and you know just in a way i guess my advice is the same to you as it was to me is to to not be afraid and because it is experiential learning and what i've seen over the years i see this especially with residents like the ones that have been pushed or push themselves early on, the rich get richer. Like they get, they're more acclimated and they're more able to take on more complex cases and, uh, you know, manage things that um, other people aren't comfortable with. And so they take themselves out of. And so, for me, the way to get comfortable with something is to to do it. And then you make a mistake and you learn from it. But like. Having that ability to be open about the fact that that's going to happen and that's how you are going to learn can be really hard. And it's doubly hard when you're in surgery. Because the things you're learning on sometimes end up becoming things that are unfortunate for your patients and that's that's hard.
0: I could imagine how tough that is. I was just going to say with medicine, it's it's quite tougher um, compared to other fields like in engineering, you create a product. What's the greatest you learn from that, I think? Um, a fear that students have, myself included, is that um, you're dealing with patients' lives and, and it's so sacred and so precious. And I feel like some, some things that hold us back is, is you don't want to do a mistake and you don't want to um, do something that's detrimental to the patient and their families and their loved ones. And that often sometimes holds us too much back from experiencing and learning.
1: Yeah, there's almost a sweet spot of, you know, taking care of the person as a person and also taking care of their problem and sometimes to take care of their problem properly you have to in essence depersonalize them to a certain extent and and that's that's definitely something that you know happens in surgery and even though we have all of these other reasons why we drape people and we wear certain things you know i think that transformation of the patient into this draped body and then you know the the, The gown and gloves that we wear kind of help put you into that mind frame because I think if you were thinking you know really focusing on that person in their life and the people who depend on them and their worries sometimes it's hard to do the things that you need to do to make them better so that's a challenge I think particularly for surgery it may be for other fields too I haven't thought of it that way though
2: yeah and I think another thing as well is the evaluative aspect of clerkship I think there's a fear of like if you make a mistake like they're gonna think you're like a not a good clerk which I think it's probably a misconception that students have but I feel like that's probably at the back of their mind as well.
1: But I think you know it's not like you just have one chance you make a mistake and like oh you know that person is terrible because you're with people for a while even with me it might just be a day or two but you know, I expect a few mistakes over the course of that day. I mean, if there aren't mistakes, there's not learning. So, um, but I, I, I hear what you're saying. And I've had a longstanding concern about um, some of the levels of assessment that are required for this program. But um, unfortunately, that's just the way it is.
2: Yeah. Um, so switching gears to the next question. Uh, we know that you had a passion for your for your medical field since your hard headed days. Um, <laughs> uh, but what what if you couldn't do medicine or medical education at all? What what would you have done instead?
1: You know, I started out in history and religion, as I told you. And what I really wanted to do was international development. So I wanted to have that kind of broader strokes of kind of helping with programs or policies or even diplomacy Um, and because I was history and religion when I graduated from uh, university and applied to the Peace Corps I was turned down because I didn't have a skill so (laughs) and that made me feel like if I want to go forward and make a difference I need something to bring to the table I need a skill so that kind of was the early thinking of moving me toward medicine but I hadn't even put that together initially when I got rejected from the Peace Corps.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm noticing too that a, a lot of uh, our guests so far have had very like roundabout pathways almost of getting to medicine like there wasn't a clear like I want to be a doctor from from this age and just going straight to med school like a lot of our guests so far have had this kind of very unique unorthodox pathways it's, it's nice to hear for students. So-
1: my you know my i told you my father's a doctor my mother is also a doctor and in fact i'm fourth generation from my mother's side so we all knew one of us i have two sisters one of us had to go into medicine and it was supposed to be my little sister so i was like fine i'm off the hook but then she didn't do well in physics and she's just as stubborn as me so she wouldn't take it over again and so she couldn't get into medical school and so i was voted to do it because my older sister went to law school so but I, I love medicine. I think we're so privileged to do this work. And, you know, I love every bit of my job, the clinical side and the academy side. It's just, it's amazing. So we're very, very lucky.
0: I'm curious to know, the, so the eldest one went to law school, you went to medical school and the youngest one
1: So she's sort of a hybrid. So first of all, I'll tell you that um, when my parents dropped my older sister off to university, they said, you can do anything you want except be a lawyer. So she's a lawyer. And then (laughs) um, Julie, my younger sister, she actually ended up being in the medical field. She's a physician's assistant at, um, it's called uh, the Fred Hutchinson Institute. It's in Seattle, it's a cancer care center, sort of like um, Princess Margaret. And she, functions essentially as a medical resident, but permanently, which I'm glad I don't have that job.
0: <laughs> yeah, so PAs are, are becoming more common now in, in Canada, but I think before um, before even the, there was like a formal formalized programs in, in different universities, it was really common in the States to be a PA. Yes. Um, and yeah, I, I totally, it's it's like, essentially folks, it's long story short, like uh, Dr. Zirkle said, it's it's like a... Blue, Resident, but for long term, and then you just stay as that. Um,
1: right. So you don't get have the responsibility hanging over your head, but you also don't have the income potential. But ultimately, you know, you you don't have autonomy. So it's an interesting structure there, though, because all of their attendings are basically in research, and so they don't have a lot of um, patient care experience, and so they really rely on the PAs to provide the care. So
0: interesting interesting Mm -hmm. uh field um so transitioning to the next question it's what is a misconception students have about medical school or mirror medicine in general
1: um i mean i don't know what your conceptions are of it i think um i guess one one concern is it like how hard it is and I, I'm not, I don't want to seem arrogant. I actually don't think it's hard. It is a lot of work, but it's actually, if you just kind of stick with it, there's not as much complexity I would say as other fields. So I think there's a lot more complexity in say mathematics or physics, and maybe it's just cause I'm not that good at those things. But I think with medicine, a lot of it is kind of paying attention, having a good memory, being able to integrate things. But if you put in the time um it's definitely achievable with um with hard work
2: yes it's, it's good to hear that you know hard work hard work pays off so definitely to our listeners keep pushing through you, know, you got this <laughs> um, awesome and then the next question here is um you might have touched on this earlier but i guess we could elaborate a little bit more um, how did you decide to become an academy director
1: um You've met Dr. Houston, right? Yes. He's a very persuasive individual. And so um, she asked me if I wanted to do this job and I told her no. And then <laughs> she asked me again and I called my dad and he said, you know, Molly, you're a surgeon. Like, why would you want to do this job? <clears throat> and so I told her no again. And then she called me and she said, I really think you're a good fit for this and I want you to give it a try. And so she kind of talked me into it. Um, And I'm very thankful for that because it's really expanded my world so much in terms of my job and how I think about what I do. I love seeing patients and being in the room with them and explaining things and I love operating, but this gives me a chance to do something on a bigger scope and it really appeals to kind of the developmental side. I love watching kind of the progression of students when they come in and sort of, you know, eager and ready and clueless and there's so much energy. And then as you all gain competency and experience and confidence, it's really exciting to watch the transition. The biggest one is is when you become a clerk. And it's, it's just very satisfying and, and it never gets old. I love watching um, you all move forward and then come back and do your residency. And so I had like my anesthesia resident yesterday was a Fitzy, a former Fitzy. And it's just oh. great to see kind of the evolution of a physician turning into a doctor, so. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, it's a very very unique perspective to have. And- it must must be rewarding as well.
1: Yeah, it's great.
2: And would you say if she didn't
0: approach, you would never have thought of going into being like an academy director or like a in a leadership position as you are now?
1: It wouldn't have occurred to me at that phase because I had only been at St. Michael's for three years. So the backstory is, I came here from the U.S. in 2004, and I could not practice medicine until 2007. And so for three years, I was idle. And you can imagine I wasn't very happy about that. And Mm -hmm. so when I finally got a job, I, as a surgeon, I had a skill set I wanted to develop and maintain. And so that was really my focus. So 2007, when I started hitting the ground, like that was really where I wanted to be. And so to have an opportunity to come up three years later to do something that wasn't clinical, that would not have been something that I would seek out at that moment for myself, but I'm happy it happened the way it did because um, the clinical stuff came and that's fun, but it also allows me to have this other way of contributing, which I love, so.
2: That's that's amazing. I I, I totally agree. Dr. Dr. Houston can be very persuasive. Yes. (laughs) In in the best way, of course, (laughs) course, yeah. (laughs)
1: You know, she she is a fantastic leader in my opinion because she really come it comes from the heart. Yeah, she just wants to make things better, and and that's genuine. I've seen that. I've worked with her for ten years. I've seen it over and over again.
2: Yeah, she, sure. she, she has a oops, discussion. You can go ahead. No, I keep I keep doing this. Man. You you go first.
0: I <laughs> mean, <laughs> uh, yeah, even, even when we sat down with her and uh, we we had a talk you could feel the genuineness of it and you can see like it's she's very caring and very um tries as much as possible to work for for the students in in one aspect and the medical learners but also just changing the culture and changing the environment and that's a tough sell right to change a culture change an environment and that's not something that happens overnight but it's something that needs consistent effort and consistent work towards until you see uh, results
1: yeah Mm-hmm.
2: I was going to say it's very similar thing like as members of like MedSoC I think Nader and I both see her in like different uh, meetings and things and she's always like advocating for like the student perspective of things so I, we really appreciate that. Yeah
1: and her capacity for work is amazing and she's also really organized and so you know like we're looking at accreditation right now and I'm going through all of the things that you know we needed to do and most of them are done like she's, she's someone who can get stuff done. So,
2: mm-hmm.
1: all right, enough praising of my boss.
2: We'll send yeah.
0: like that cook to Dr. House and be like, FYI, yeah.
1: <laughs> you're loved <laughs> She knows. Um,
0: yeah. <laughs> now talk about medicine. So you mentioned that you've been practicing for 10 years and or 13 years now in Canada. Um, so how has medicine changed? um we can say even from before when you started practicing in the states to now like how what is change in medicine and what do you think the future holds
1: um so well first of all there's a huge difference in practicing in the u.s versus practicing here it's night and day it's so much more fun to practice medicine here because everybody you see has health care that's amazing you know mm. we don't have health care insurance for everybody in the u.s and so you'll see people who need it and then trying to figure out how to help them is very complex. Um, in terms of Canada, I think it's, it's changing very slowly but I do see patients becoming more uh, of an advocate for themselves, wanting more to understand what their problem is and what their options are and being a more active participant in clinical decision making. When I first came here I felt it was very traditional and actually almost like 20 years behind the U.S. with respect to how physicians saw or how patients saw their physician. So and um, because the U.S. is even further from that, I mean, when I was practicing in Boston, I would have people come in with like a journal article that I hadn't had a chance to read yet, explaining how they wanted me to manage their problem based on this article. Um, And and so here I see people becoming more proactive about their care, which I, I think is really great.
2: That's that's really reassuring, uh, probably as a physician. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess the the last question we want to ask you here before we get your student story that you had in mind uh, Mm -hmm. is what's something you want students to know about you that that we haven't talked about?
1: I guess um, if it's not obvious, I want them to know that I am here because I want to make things better for them. And I really do care about what happens with you guys and how your what your experiences are i do believe that how you're treated it will be somehow in the package of how you see yourself as a physician and um, i see that as an extremely important uh, job for me to do
2: yeah i think i think that speaking with you is it's very clear like that you that you care about what you do so the mm-hmm. fitzies are all lucky to have you uh, Thank you. <laughs> yeah, and now I'll go, we'll turn it over to you for your your favorite student story before we wrap up.
1: So, um, actually, this is with one of my Fitzy clerks who was just um, with me, I think, two weeks ago, and I've been observing actually since the clerks returned. So, not the um, incoming clerks, but the returning clerks that they were just different, like they were very strong. They seemed very confident, they were hardworking, but they had like a really great attitude. And it's been an absolute pleasure since they came back July 6th. And I, I speak for all of my uh, physician colleagues in the hospital, I've talked to a lot of people who have noticed this too. And so I asked uh, the clerk I was with, I, I said, what's up with this? Because, you know, usually I have you know, a handful of people who really stand out as amazing, but I'm telling you that every person who's been through on my rotation at St. Mike's since, since they have come back has been amazing. And I, and I asked him like, why is this? Because I wanted to have his perspective. And he said, you know, we're just really grateful to be here. Like we, we were not here for three or four months and we know what we lost and we're ready to come back and be a part of this. And we're very thankful that we can be here. And, it was just great to see kind of how someone's view of what they're doing really can transform how they do it. Mhm.
2: hundred um, percent. I think uh, you hear a lot about clerks are being you know, a lot of work and stress and all, all that but also the the part that we should probably emphasize is how great of an opportunity it is to to be in that space and like you said earlier like not Other programs don't get that opportunity in the same way that we do. So we're really lucky.
1: But also just to really like seize it and, and don't hold back because of your own fear or your attitude of like, this is too hard or it's not fair, but just like really going in and embracing it. Like that's what I've seen. And, and it just feels different, like to work with people who feel that way. And even, you know, people, they spend one week in my clinic. It's not like it's, a known quantity to anyone who's there, but like you just, you can feel it's different for them, so.
0: Yeah, that's a really good student story of the week. Um, Dr. Zirkel, we are cognizant of your time, but we really wanted to thank you for coming and and speaking to us and and having this opportunity to sit down with you and really get to know you um, outside of just, you know, med school, and but getting to know you as a person. Um, So thank you for that. And if you have any questions, I had no
1: idea this would fill an hour because I'm usually very succinct but I guess like everyone else I like talking about myself.
0: <laughs> oh, and it was it was well worth the time. Yeah. It was well worth the time for sure. Yeah, we really did enjoy it. Thank so, you very much. Yeah. Thank and you. we'll stay in touch.
1: Have a good weekend. Thank you.
2: A good bye. Bye bye.